describes acts of extreme violence in graphic detail and may include discussions about demonology and the occult, topics that caused widespread panic during the 1980s. This content may not be suitable for children under the age of 50. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And where are we from today, Dan? We're from the ninth layer of the abyss. Ah, excellent. Burning water, I believe. Burning water, yes. And my comedy bit about the pool is not worth repeating. So, uh, yep, we're still in the abyss. And and I was telling you the tenth layer. I'm really looking forward to. I don't know if there's. I don't know. Should you anticipate uh, going to deeper into the abyss? But uh, it's called that hellhole. I love it. Which, that, which, as you know, was was the second album of uh, what are some of our of the uh, pseudo undead? Pseudo undead. That's right. Uh, after sailing the sea of corpses, sail away to that hellhole. So no, but this makes sense. You know what's happening is the longer you stay here, you start to you start to like it. I think that's what right. it does to you, don't you think? That's what's I happening have. to you. Hell ain't a bad place to be. I've right? by the prophets, ACDC. Yeah, so uh, I think that's what's happening. So yeah, so so still in the abyss. And we I are just... super excited, even though this is usually a curse when I say this. Uh, um, we have a really special guest. We've had a lot of special guests, but today we're hoping to have David Zeb Cook on. Uh, talked to him last night, so we're looking forward to seeing him at 10 o'clock. Oh yeah, no he no he needs to be here because you you know I've done a lot of research. Oh my god! I want you know I, I listen to all him. those interviews. I warned him. I warned him. I know you did. That's not nice. They think I'm a freak, <laughs> which is accurate. But you don't uh, have to let them know. I I did mention that you may ask him what the Bond paper was of the manuscript that he created uh, right. the Player's Handbook Second Edition. That may come up. Uh, that's he important. Said he, you make it sound like that's not important. Right. Was the... Uh, yes. Oh, and, and so again, hello to everyone out there. Uh, yes, we hope you have a lot of questions lined up. I have uh, a question for you, James. Yes. I noticed on the YouTube channel, sometimes guests will get an exclamation point, and sometimes they won't. Is that intentional? It's... Uh, no, it's, it's poor quality control, basically. <laughs> Okay. I have, I have, so our guests I, shouldn't be insulted if they don't get an exclamation point. No, they should not be. I just, I think sometimes, <laughs> you know, I, I've become that person. I'm super, I'm, you know, trying to show excitement. So every time I'm just running around. Uh, what are you doing back there? You're welcome. So, Thank you. Well, no, he, they were talking about Oriental Adventures. So I, oh, I thought you were, I thought you were petting Go Delicious. 
Well, I, w- I should pet, the, you know, he's been lonely, so. Have you seen Go to- Really? You want to pet, have you, are you familiar with Go Delicious? Uh, well, but he's, he's part of the thing. Yes, the, the, uh, I was just pulling out uh, Oriental Ventures if we do get a chance. I don't know if you're going to talk about that or not, so. Well, it was 85, I think, right? It's, it's, it's a little it's bit hit, later, yeah. It's hitting the limit there. It is hitting the limit. So, uh, and although but, I stopped playing in 1985, I want to make it clear it was not because of Oriental Adventures. Right. Well, uh, one of our dear friends, uh, you know, Menyon, who is uh, was doing a lot of research on Oriental Adventures, and maybe maybe we can get him on the show. That would be great. Uh, but take a has, little, yeah, take a little bit of, of the weight off of me. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think that would be wonderful because. You are carrying the load when it comes to the interviews. I do all the other things, including random uh, insertions of exclamation now, points. Now, you know what I decided, and actually I, I continued playing through the 80s, but, but now I think that they, when you ask a question, mm-hmm. they, I think they're actually relieved because it's a more normal, open-ended, more thoughtful question mm-hmm. as opposed to a useless minutia. So. No, I think I think our interviewing style is we. It, it's it's a good balance. It's needed. It is. We are the yin to our yang, or yang to the something something to that effect. There's, right. Uh, you complete me. I think we're supposed to have a hug now. So that's. But we can't because that's against the. Uh, has uh, against all rules. Even though we are slightly opening up, which is great. I hope the rest of the world is. Uh, you're getting to see people. Everyone's got their masks. It's. It's, I mean, we're basically living like a century ago. This is crazy talk. But I digress. So we've got some announcements. Uh, October 9th through the 11th. You know, I, uh, one week, I think, oh, it's not going to happen. Then the next week, I'm like, ah, I think it may happen. So we're still planning for it. I know we saw some posts on Facebook for Crucible, and we'll know more hopefully sooner than later. I don't know if you have any more news on that. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I think like everything else right now, People are, you know, waiting and seeing. So I think that there's optimism. It, the, it is, the plan is, 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 is to have it. But, you know, that's, that's obviously I'm sure that's, that's subject to, to how things develop. And, and, you know, and, you know, James and I, you know, we're not, we're, we're not the deciders in this, right? We're just, right. we're just, we're, we, we go as they go. So if, if they go, we've got GrogCon. If, if they don't, we know, we know it's at James's house. Right. Um, and so now, so we just wait and see attitude. So not well, attitude. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously it's, it's very conducive. We do at the hotel because everything's there. It's, it's uh, people can stay there. Whereas here they're staying with you and a cat, whether it's grizzly or someone else uh, <laughs> that you're sheltering. Um, can they fit in the little cages? That's really the question. Cause uh, I, you have to be small. We've <laughs> Yeah, you must be this size if you're going to stay at dance. Only house. gnomes. Well, I'm just I'm a gnome friendly house. That's right, gnome friendly. Or yeah, human unfriendly. So, so when you look at the hotels on on Airbnb, there's yes. a little gnome symbol to say yes. that you're there. Ah, oh, very nice. I like it. Exactly. So um, you were kind of up in the air with that, uh, but we are. What we're not up in the air with is the Grog Grognards Guild Online, where DMs. Brian and Josh, when he's available, Josh has been super busy, but Brian's taken up the mantle. He's playing every week. He played yesterday. Um, if you're hankering for D&D, AD&D, first edition, and you're not, uh, and you're available Friday nights at 7 p.m., give Brian a, a shout on our meetup, or and he'll get you connected. 
So, um, you know, that's the, uh, that's a great opportunity, especially in these times of, uh, social distancing. It's hard to play games and AD&D is not like it's everywhere. So, um, in a time of uncertainty, in a time of uncertainty, that's right. Of, <laughs> a, a, a voice cries out in the wilderness. For a DM rises. That's right. To meet the challenge. I've, virtually. Virtually. <laughs> but he does a great job and it was a lot of fun to have him. And it was also fun to play with the Halls of Tizen thing, which I hope to post this week. I'm having a little struggle with my prov- uh, internet provider, not my internet, my, our hoster, which again, thanks to our patrons, we're allowed to do. But the file is so long because it's a five and a half hour file. I'm having to cut it up and put it up there. So that should go up. Okay. Uh, giveaways. Well, you know, once we get our Keep It Blood Red Falls stuff, Vic, he's not on yet, but uh, when when he's when that when we get that, we'll turn around and give it away, which we're su- I'm super excited about because um, I'm looking forward to reading the secrets of Keep It Blood Red Falls and mm-hmm. then giving and then giving that uh, that module away um, because again for our patrons that'll be awesome. Uh, we do have a heraldry coming up, but not this time. I'm waiting for the person to claim their land, and then I have another person. So probably next week we'll do that. And uh, no iTunes reviews. So, all right, let me get, uh, let's get our dear friend uh, Zeb Cook up, and we will be back. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. to the lobby got your stuff very nice congratulations dan you got to the lobby and uh we have a special guest today so dan while you're chewing your raisinets uh, why don't you introduce our our guest today okay so it's our pleasure to have on the show today zeb cook he worked as a designer for tsr for 15 years from 1979 to 1994 Two of the modules that he wrote were ranked by Dungeon Magazine among the 30th greatest D&D adventures ever written. He, of course, also wrote the expert set as well as second edition AD&D and the Planescape campaign setting. So, Azev, thank you so much for being a guest on Grog Talk. Oh, happy to be here. <laughs> Great. Well, so, and, and, and we should tell you, oh, there it is. We, you know, we had the, the, the Grog Talk fans were, were clamoring for your appearance. So uh, this is. They don't know what they've asked for. <laughs> <laughs> well, they'll find out. So, 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 Zev, can we talk? You know, so, you know, our show, of course, it focuses on first edition AD&D, but we certainly want to talk about the, the expert set and second edition as well, since, since those, of course, were your creations. Uh, could, could you take us back to, to the mid 70s and just tell us a little bit about. How you started? How you discovered D and D? Oh, I, I discovered D and D when I uh, went to college, and I uh, had been a war gamer 
uh, for in high school and stuff, which I got introduced to by my brother a long time ago. And so I joined up with the, uh, there was a college gaming group there, uh, mostly playing, again, war games and tabletop games, that sort of stuff. And I think it was about 75 that somebody in the group had basically was starting this strange new game that nobody really knew much about. And I kind of heard from a few people, yeah, he's he's running this game and it's really fun. It's really interesting. And you should like, you know, maybe, you know, check it out. And you know, so I weaseled an invitation into the game and uh, got introduced to D&D. And it was like, oh, my God, this is this is pretty amazing, because I also happened to be a theater minor at the time. Uh, so so it was like, oh, look, acting. Not that I was really an actor. <laughs> well, well, did you also feel like they weren't very good actors? As oh, well? none of us were. I mean, I mean, he was uh, he was a lot. He was uh Going to law school or planning or, you know, what was going to go to law school. Uh, uh, one of the other guys uh, later on was, was a screenwriter, um, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, various other things. Me, I, my, my interest in, in theater was more for set design and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, I was an English major, so, you know, I knew that was unemployable. <laughs> so, uh, do so you find the unemployable, like, you know, minor to go to. <laughs> That's not true, because we know you became a teacher, and we'll talk about that. So That's you just weren't paid very much. <laughs> do, you, do you stay in touch with any of those guys? So that, that original gaming group? Do... I, I hear a little bit, mostly through Facebook, from one of them. Uh, and, uh, other thing, you know, other things have happened. I think one, one, there were, there've been a few deaths and that sort of thing. So, uh, so you don't, you know, mostly though, it's just kind of, you know, Facebook contact at most. I, we all, we all went our many different ways after college. Okay. Now I thought what was interesting is that unlike, it seems like the vast majority of people who play their first D and D game, you were not an elf magic user. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and what did you play? I, I, I went for the dwarf right away just because, you know, uh, I'm not even quite sure why, but it just seemed like a good one to do. Um, it was and, all that was left. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, played, played a dwarf, and, you know, he promptly died after, like, an adventure or two because, you know, you don't know what you're doing, you get yourself killed. So I made up another dwarf, and I think that one also died, and, and uh, I think it was about the third or so character finally that actually stuck around for a while. And this was all original box D&D, which could be very unforgiving. <laughs> and, and you know, we were all kind of learning the, the idea that, you know, you probably really want to fudge this a bunch so that people will keep coming back to your game and, and that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It is strange, though, how many people in their first game, their character dies at very first session, and yet they're hooked. So unlike most things where, yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if things don't go well the first time you do it, you're a bit discouraged. It seems like with D&D, death did not dissuade any of us. If for some strange reason, it seemed to draw us in. Well, it was that, A, it was that idea of like, wow, hey, this is, you know, this is like cool, dangerous. I lost, essentially. Um, you know, you came from tabletop games. It was like, oh, I lost is the mentality, not so much, oh, my character died. And and also, you know, the game was like so like oh, I have no idea what's really going on. Hey, if I do this again, maybe I'll do better. 
Um, because you know you could always you could always excuse the first couple of deaths to like, oh really? <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> You're not supposed to pet a giant spider. <laughs> and, and then after a while, when it, when he started dying, he was you know you could start blaming. Then it's then it was be more where where you'd be like, wow, I'm not sure I like this because you'd start blaming you know. Oh, I should have known better, and then you get up discouraged, or oh, the 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 DM had it out. What had you know? What's clearly had it out for us? That sort of thing. And I'd like to ask you about because I, I I read online something you'd you'd written about your that game that you you played in that group that you played in in college, and and I thought it was interesting because you said that there was a lot of memorable moments, like the time one of the group created a fighter with 17 strength. And three dexterity, yay! Random rolls. He wore a pop bottle, thick glasses, and decided the character had vision as good as he did without the glasses. It made for great role playing and much accidental death. So, I can, can you just tell us a little because, you know, that that non power gaming aspect can be a lot of fun at times. You know, you, a lot of people they get a three as a character attribute. They're very unhappy. You seem to see, and I know it wasn't your character, but you seem to see that differently. Well, I mean, he he embraced it for was a big part of it is that he could have he could have you know easily said oh like can I re-roll this everybody said sure that's pretty much not going to fly but he said no no wait I can make this work right and and as he demonstrated yeah he'll have he'll have bite as me and he took off his glasses and he realized wow he really really yes had you know really bad vision and and so but he also then because of that he knew how to play that. Yeah, you know, with the character in ways that weren't completely like, oh yeah, I just get killed the first opportunity. Um, but it would be like things we'd get into a fight, and he's like, wait, I gotta find a tree. I gotta find a tree. And it's like, why? I'm gonna put my back to a tree and just swing my sword randomly in front of me. <laughs> and that is, and that is sort of the memorable moments, right? I mean, no, those are that's what you remember in games. Um, so, so he was a terrible fighter, but but it made for a lot of a lot of humor at the table, so we all enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I think I, that's a great tagline too. What for for D and I'm surprised you guys didn't come up. Don't let death dissuade you. That should be. You know. <laughs> that's right. That's oh, yeah, right. That's, that, that's a real winning marketing line. <laughs> well, that's that's probably why I'm in IT and not in marketing. So that's uh, there you go. Um, I noticed that online. I saw that where you said that that wargaming group had a fanzine. So I I gotta ask, might there be a Zeb Cook fanzine article out there somewhere? Oh yes, there is. In fact, uh, uh, John, the guy who did playing at wrote playing at the world, has actually dug up copies. I mean, he, copies of it. He finds everything. I don't even, you know, I don't even have copies of it. I was actually the editor of the, of the, of the fanzine for, for like a year. Cause you know, it was, it was our little club publication kind of a thing. Um, okay. I'm disappointed. I don't have copies of those too. <laughs> of course you want. Something to work on. That's right. I'm, 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 I'm failing. So, all right. So I know you, you played through college and, and now you get, you get married, right? I mean, cause I know that when you take your job, you know, your wife is very supportive of you moving into gaming. So did you get, just out of curiosity, did you get married in college? And cause you'd mentioned somewhere that your wife was a gamer, which got me curious. Well, my wife wasn't a gamer when we first met, um, and that sort of stuff. And really kind of was a gamer when uh, I was in college and, and she would come visit and I would say, hey, you know, I'm going to go play this game thing. You might want to come, 
you know, come along because, you know, what else are you going to do but, you know, sit around and, and, and you know, by yourself. And and so kind of introduced her to it there. She enjoyed it quite a bit. And, uh, and then uh, after college, when we got married, we wound up uh, living pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and so the only thing to do was to, uh, basically, I would run a, I ran a solo game for her, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> I was, and we're going to get, I was going to ask, so it's, it sounds like there wasn't a, a high school D&D club that you oh, organized no. at your school when you started teaching. No, I didn't, I didn't think that, that probably was a little too weird for, <laughs> for the, the high school at the time. Uh, mind you, the high school was also incredibly tiny. <laughs> Yes, I think right. So you 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 take a job teaching English, right, in, in Milligan, Nebraska, and I think you said right around three hundred people are in that town. Yeah, uh, yeah. My, my my father in law is from three bars. Uh, uh, we lived. Uh, we we actually rented a a place over one of the bars, and that bar was run by the former English teacher uh, of the in, in school, <laughs> uh, which was you know, helpful in some ways, uh, and or. Uh, and I mean, the town was full of very good people and stuff, but it was it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a farming community uh, in Nebraska, well away from uh, uh, a lot of, you know, any kind of major, major towns and stuff. Um, so for me, this wasn't quite so uh, distressing because I grew up on a farm and you know, outside of a town of 300 people and, and you know, through most of my uh, you know, up until junior high or something like that. So I was kind of used to, I was, you know, at least kind of knew this idea. Uh, my wife was a little bit more like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> she seems to have made a lot of sacrifices. <laughs> a few, yeah. <laughs> uh, so but it, was it distressing to you to go from being able to play? I, I assume you weren't also finding a lot of wargaming players either. Was it distressing to move from a college scene where you had a lot of players to a place like Milligan where all of a sudden you're just, it's a D and D game where the only player is, is your wife. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a challenge. I mean, we could drive, uh, you know, usually like once a month would drive into, uh, like it was like 60 or 80 miles away, I think to, uh, Lincoln to, and there was a major hobby shop. There was a big hobby shop there and they had gaming and stuff, and so go do that. But you know, this was this was kind of an expedition. And as a teacher, you never had any money for any of this sort of stuff anyway. <laughs> right. <laughs> can you, can you, can you, I want to go back a little bit in time. Can you tell us about Gen Con Nine? So I know you go to Gen Con, right? Um, and and can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? So oh, Gen Con 9, which one was that? So that would be in August 1976. This is the one where apparently, oh, so you, you write in, in, in the hall, yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah, so because so I went to a couple of Gen Cons in uh, uh, that were still when it was still in Lake Geneva. One was at the Horto, the first one I went to was at the Horticultural Hall. That might have been nine, I unless because the other one we went to was at the Playboy Club out there, and I think that was later. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it's the horticultural hall is just this fairly small uh, uh, building, and and it's kind of an interesting building because it's got kind of a big central space, and then these these kind of side wings are on it, but it's all one gigantic room essentially, um, and uh, so 
D and D was still, you know, still pretty much, you know, in its in its infancy at this point. I think that was the year that Judges Guild uh, first released something. Uh, they they had the yeah they had the city state they had the maps for the city state they, and and they didn't have the, I don't think they had the whole rest of the package but they had the maps and the maps were like oh my god look at these these are amazing <laughs> because they were really kind of this first like hey let let's do a really kind of a cool cartographic effort that was on a big scale and so you know you had to you know had to have those and then then you get you you get this book that the uh, E for it that was just kind of like ran, oh, you know, it's like, oh, look, you know, tavern, three guys, that's it, that's all it's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but you, the map was huge and elaborate, so it was like a great inspiration and material for, for doing stuff. The, um, the, the, map, the, the map is, I was very disappointed. I, I love the Art and Arcana book, right, which is on behind James's shoulder there. Um, I was disappointed that, that the map of the city-state didn't make it in there, because it is Amazing. Mine is laminated. Um, just out of curiosity, do you? My understanding is that Bob Bledsaw and Bill Owens were selling that out of the trunk of their car. <laughs> so now no, they have a table. They ha I remember they had okay. a table. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So know. I had this image of no, like. They're all card tables that were set up kind of thing throughout the place. And, uh, and so, yeah, mostly you went, you played games. Uh, you played a lot of not D&D games, but you played, you know, all these various other games, uh, Kingmaker and. Uh, mm. All the all the other kind of things that were very popular at the time, plague and Calais. Hmm. Plague and Calais. Oh yeah, King, there we go. <laughs> Kingmaker. I'm a big Kingmaker fan. So yeah, you later, um, later on at the hobby shop when we when I was working at TSR, we would play Kingmaker games occasionally, and we had one guy uh, who uh, would kind of ran our you know facilities and the shipping and a bunch of other stuff. He was a great guy, um, but he built. A uh, a kingmaker board that was you know all you know out of wood and painted and all this sort of stuff really elaborate and had painted figures for all this stuff and he would they would run kingmaker he would play kingmaker games but figured out the the way to make it really 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 tense which was everybody threw like five or ten bucks in the pot mm. at the start of the game and at the end of the game whoever was king got to give out the money ah <laughs> interesting. <laughs> So, cool. so towards the end of the game, there was often a lot of like, hey, hey, you know, if you make me king, I'll split this pot with you. <laughs> I like it because, yeah, Kingmaker is pretty, it's pretty tense. It made it a much more cutthroat game. <laughs> and, who, and who doesn't enjoy cutthroat when you're That's playing it. a game in France, That's right? That's like diplomacy. I played diplomacy once. I I had invaded my you know my friends you know territory. I felt very dirty about it all, and I I, I don't know. I, I didn't get into diplomacy for that reason. But um, could you tell? So I, we know. So you um you graduate. You take a job teaching English, and um, you only do that for a couple years because <laughs> I assume you have a subscription to Dragon I have a Magazine. To Dragon Magazine and. Uh... You know, I kept up on you know, you know saw the you know D and D stuff. We were we were pretty had my collection of minis, all this sort of stuff. And yeah, it's sometime in the, I guess it must have been '78. They ran an ad uh, looking for uh, basically designers, and it was just this little tiny little ad that was in Dragon. And uh, yeah, teaching was not really. Uh, I was not. My temperament is not well suited to it, I guess. <laughs> uh, Why not? Now I gotta ask. Oh, it's just 
I I, uh, I am very I get very impatient about things, and uh, I put my foot through a door one time, uh, and, and uh, yeah, I had to go down and explain that to the uh, to the superintendent. Uh, it yeah. sounds like it was a good thing you got hired at DSR. Hole in the door. You were gonna end up you were gonna end up opening a bar. I think that's the career path, right? You go from English yeah. teacher uh, to facing uh, uh, items at the school, and then perhaps being a bartender is more your st style. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, right. So, um, um, so they ran an ad and kind of decided, you know, my wife was uh, supportive again uh, and uh, basically uh, submitted a uh, resume or whatever passed for a resume kind of at that point. Got back from them a uh, you know a uh, list of a whole bunch of questions to answer, and then uh, and also they wanted a writing sample of a of an adventure short adventure writing sample, uh, and the questions were were everything from like okay you know how familiar are you know that we're clearly about well how familiar were you with D and D to uh, to obscure question, obscure questions of history of things that Gary really, you know, like, you know, what is a, you know, what is a bohemian ear spoon kind of a thing, you know, this sort of stuff, right? Wow. Uh, and clearly, you know, it was like, you know, if you've been reading Dragon Magazine, you could kind of find the answers to a bunch of these things and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, answered all these questions and sent off the, the writing sample. And, you know, that was like, oh, this is going to be, you know, well, we'll see, but and uh, was pretty amazed when they when they came back and said yes that they'd like to hire us hire me um, and or they would like to have me have me come out for an interview that was you know they weren't going to hire me yet they wanted to actually meet me though and so that was um, so that was like okay um, yeah working out how to get there was the challenge because they did, they were very much a very small kind of operation and everything and they were like well you know you know buy it you know buy a plane ticket and come here and uh, we'll we'll reimburse you know we'll we'll get you reimbursed and all that sort of stuff and i had to explain i was a teacher i couldn't afford to buy a plane ticket <laughs> and could they perhaps do that up front <laughs> and so that <laughs> and who who are you so is this via telephone like who are you negotiating with at this point uh, I believe I was uh, that a lot of this that some of this was handled by a, a woman named Rose Estes who uh, worked there. I think that was who I was working with, and or might have been uh, might have been Mary Gary's wife for some of this. It's a little hard. I, long time ago, I don't remember exactly, but I worked all this stuff out and managed to get up there, and uh, and basically did this interview, which was I get to Lake Geneva and I'm uh, kind of. Uh, waiting on a street corner for it to be picked up by uh, by Gary's wife because Gary does not does not drive, uh, and so uh, you know she picked me up and you know took me out to their place where I basically uh, was interviewed by Gary and spent you know spent a good chunk of the time talking to him and I think actually uh, again this is giving an idea of just how um, how you know, small the company was and informal was that, you know, they didn't have me booked into a hotel or any motel or anything. Instead, I wound up sleeping on, on Gary's 
couch out on his like screen porch or something like this. <laughs> and that, <laughs> I mean, well, I, I and exaggerate that, that a little bit, but it was pretty much was just about like that. <laughs> well, wait, but you, so, but, but you did sleep on the porch, I believe, right? So that's right. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I definitely spent the night on a on a couch at at his, you know, or you know, one of the you know, something like that at well, his place. Because if, <laughs> if it is the porch, that porch is famous. Right. He played that's he played D and D games out there on that that porch. Uh, so uh, it, had you had you met Gary before? So you've been to Gen Con and while it was still a pretty small affair. So do you I remember seeing him? But, you know, I was like, oh, that's who that's Gary Gygax. I didn't talk to him or anything. I'm not a, I'm not the super outgoing kind of person in some ways. <laughs> um, and and so, yeah, but that was really the first time I'd actually, you know, seriously talk to him or anything like that. Okay. Uh, what was, what was your impression of Gary when you first met him? Oh, he was very affable. He's very, you know, he's, he's, he's a charming person. You know, he's, uh, he, I mean, he was a charming person. He was very affable. He, uh, you know, he likes talking with people. He likes, he likes, inter- he liked interacting with and this sort of stuff. So, you know, it was, it was perfectly pleasant and, uh, he seemed to like me. So that even, that helped, you know, <laughs> And uh, it, we, so we offered a job there on the spot when you met with Gary. I'm not sure if it was on the spot, but it was shortly after that. Yeah, it wasn't long after that. Uh, the only challenge, the only big, the biggest problem was, is that the job involved a pay cut uh, from uh, <laughs> being a teacher in Nebraska, which was not exactly what we call making right. a lot of money at that time. So I actually had to like, kind of, we had to like make some serious, you know, like plans and, and uh, stuff about how we how we could possibly even do that. Uh, but again, we, we, we decided to take that chance. Mm. Jim Ward turned it down for that reason, right? I mean, well, yeah, it was, I, and I, I, I can perfectly understand that. <laughs> because <laughs> because <laughs> these, the pay was, was, it was very close to kind of poverty levels at that point yeah. in time. Uh, Nebraska teacher... Sri Lankan dung herder, TSR employee. Yeah, basically. somewhere it was. It was, you know, it was, but it was. It wasn't good. Fortunately, it was a. It was a. Um, it was a. It was a risk that paid off literally because within yeah. a short period of time, uh, they basically were able to boost all of our wages. You know, fairly. You know, fairly significantly. Uh, mind you, significantly even then was still. You know, like, oh, look, we're above the poverty level now. <laughs> <laughs> so, and 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 so, is this when you really started to become calling being called Zeb? I know that you've been called that in high school, right, by your students. But I, but can you also explain why the people at TSR wanted to call you Zeb as opposed? Well, I don't know to- if they wanted to call me oh. Zeb. But <laughs> well, they chose to but, instead but of David. So when when I got hired, there was already a. Uh, David Sutherland, the art director, uh, who um, you know, went by David or D, uh, uh, or Dave, uh, and then there was um, another Dave down in uh, down in uh, shipping, who went by the name Diesel, because that way they could tell them apart. You knew who was high, and so it was like, well, you know, you're. Well, you'll probably need a nickname, you know, and uh, you know we're gonna call you. Know, we'll get confused if we try to call you Dave and Dave Sullivan's like in two offices down that way, um, and so it was. It's a you know, it's that principle of if you 
going to wind up with a nickname. It's a whole lot better if you have some some voice in what that yeah, nickname is. Exactly. <laughs> or, or you know, you wind up with something like Fishhead. You know? <laughs> right. and, where, and, and where did Zeb come from? So Zeb came from basically when I was teaching uh, my high school students. Uh, some of them decided I looked like a character in some TV Western at the time who that was named Zeb. And uh, they were they were they would teasingly call me that or brought it up right, and uh, and you know students can call you a lot worse. <laughs> <laughs> so so I you know I I just you know it was amusing but you know, it wasn't a big deal but it was it was kind of an interesting nickname that you know when I got over to uh, TSR that it was easy easy to remember and memorable and so okay. Uh, we will use that, and that's pretty much stuck ever since. Does your wife call you Zeb? Um, when she is angry with me, oh, okay. uh, when she well, wants to make a point that either either I've done something wrong or I'm just being a general <laughs> ass. You know? That's awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about the building, right? And and obviously, a lot of this information that I'm asking you about, you've told before, and I appreciate you, you know, being kind enough to say it again. Um, but you know, I love the stories that you tell about the building, right? Because it's the former uh, hotel player. Yeah. So um, the TSR's original offices were this little uh, two-story uh, frame house that was uh, elsewhere in Lake Geneva. But by the time I got there, that was pretty much all given over to Dragon Magazine, with about the you know three or four people that worked on Dragon. So they had that space because we, the company expanded and it needed more space. And they had uh, the Dungeon Hobby Shop downtown, which was like right right on downtown Main Street. Uh, main intersection crossroad corner in downtown Lake Geneva it was a great location for the hobby shop. Uh, and above it were two stories of uh, this building. It was this old building and the old building was originally had been a hotel way back, you know, in the day when Lake Geneva was, you know, in the twenties and thirties, I guess, or something like that. And so um, all the rest of the offices took over the second and third floor. The second floor was uh, mostly um, that's where you know, like management and uh, the art department and eventually RPGA uh, and some other stuff was all on that floor. And the third floor was pretty much mostly design and editorial. And then Tom Wom, who had a who had an office up there for for no definite reason except you know. Give Tom Wom an office, and every once in a while, you know, something will come out of it that maybe we'll publish in Dragon <laughs> somehow. But he was never actually an officially an employee. But he had a, he had this really nice office and uh, stuff. And but the the building was kind of a dump in general. Um, and you know, the floors the, on the third floor, the the floors kind of went mm, this way, and you know, every. Every every five feet, they were angled in slightly a different direction. Uh, doors would kind of swing open mysteriously on their own because they were also out of plumb and you know this sort of thing. Uh, and and you know it hadn't been painted in you know you know twenty thirty years or whatever. So it had these this kind of a 
pale brown color. I don't even know what you call it. Kind of like the wall behind you right there. <laughs> I, 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 assume, I think it's it, called mold. I think it's called mold <laughs> or asbestos. Uh, That's what... But it was, and you know, we, we actually, you know, uh, connected, made, made, uh, you know, some of the offices are fairly small. And so to make it a little easier, like Dave Sutherland literally knocked a hole through one, uh, one into the other. And just, you know, it was just like, you know, kind of cut it up kind of neat, but there was never framed out. There was never anything done there. Nice for it. Um, but yeah, it was a great, it was a great building falling apart. There are, you know, horrible stories about, there was a hole in one on the third floor, there was a hole in one office floor that you could look down into into the offices of the of the second floor, um, and it just was always that way. At one point, when later, when Jeff Grubb, I think, was working, I think it was Jeff, who's actually put his foot, managed to have it, you know, you know, kind of fell, foot went through that hole into the second wow. floor. And, and then above the third floor, there was another set of stairs that went up that was always locked because above there had been an old ballroom on the on like the fourth floor of this hotel. And, no, and nothing was up there. You know, it was locked and nobody ever went up there. Except that one, one Friday afternoon, uh, Errol Otis, who was one of our artists at the time, was, and we were... You know, it was late Friday afternoon. Most everybody you know, had gone home. We were all just kind of wrapping up. And he found out that the he, that the for some reason somebody had uh, gone up into the uh, 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 fourth floor and had left that unlocked. So he went up to go check it out because you know, hey, what's up here? You know, and he would get up there and he was like roaming around on this thing. And apparently, there that re- required kind of like you know, there was open rafters that you kind of just kind of jumped through and went across and I'm down the hall talking to somebody. I think it was like, you know, Jeff or somebody like this or, um, and there is this loud crash. And it's like, Oh my God, what the hell is that? And kind of go head back up. And then I get up to my office, uh, which I shared with another guy. uh, And there in, in the middle of the office, hanging through the ceiling is the bottom half of Errol Otis. Whatever the plasterboard or whatever, because apparently he had misstepped and, had, and you know, stepped on part of the, the unsupported uh, thing, went right through the ceiling. And, and so, you know, got him out of there and, you know, kind of like then then we had to, you know, then it had to be explained to somebody because nobody was there. Right. We had to kind of explain to somebody that I think it was uh, that. Yeah. You know, he fell through the ceiling. And, so you told the truth. What? You told the truth. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of there was a great big hole. It was kind of hard to ignore. <laughs> well, you make something up. <laughs> That's awesome. That's amazing. I got told never to do that again, and the door always stayed locked after that. And ever since, that office just had like a piece of plywood kind of laid over the hole up above um, and never really, you know, kind of not a much done with it after that. Um, eventually, I'm told that much later, that building was almost condemned <laughs> uh, after we had moved out to our other, to our uh, larger facility. Um, almost condemned. It wasn't. It, almost. Almost. It was. yeah. <laughs> that, that's well, the I mean, I think it could have been condemned, except that somebody invested money in fixing it up. <laughs> oh, jeez. 
So, and then when you got there, right, so you get there in 79, right, I think July 79, the, the Dungeon Master's Guide. June 79. Is, uh, oh, I'm sorry, June 79. The, the Dungeon Master's Guide is, is coming out, right? I, was that the, is that the first thing that you started working on? Well, by that point, it was mostly the only, you know, by the time I got there, it came out in, uh, they released it at August Gen Con, so there really wasn't anything significant left to do on that at that point. Um, and mostly it was like reading galley proofs and they had people to do all that. So I was doing other things. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so what, and I know that you're going to, you're going to write, start writing about you. Obviously you're hired as a designer and I believe I read somewhere that the, the module, the adventure, the short adventure that you had written at, to submit with your application, uh, formed the basis for one of your later modules. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 uh, adventure that I did, uh, a little bit of it, and certainly some of the I think like the monsters and kind of the spirit of it more than anything else, uh, eventually became the uh, uh, dwellers of the Forbidden City, mm. uh, because I had done this very pulpy, uh, you know, you know, lost lost temple in the jungle kind of a thing, and so. Uh, that when we went to do it uh, when went to do it as a module, it needed to be expanded out quite a bit because you know it was like five pages long or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounds like a good you know. Listen, I like something I can run in a couple hours. But so you did. Can you tell us a little bit about the A series? So of course you write. Oh, and there it is. And we will yep. get yeah, to that one. Frog monsters. Okay. Right. Um, but before that uh, is published, A one. Right. Right. So, to the under so, so keep a little bit about day series that year or the year after i think it must have been you know something wrong that uh the every year gen con had a uh, uh a D, their big D D tournament and it was prior you know on all previous all the previous years that had been written by those by a couple of different outside groups and one of the years uh, that I was like, I think I'm, I'm not sure which one of those. There was basically it. It didn't go as well as that they, they that you know it could have. And so I think Lawrence Schick and Alan Hammock and group and 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 Harold Johnson and I basically said, you know, we should we should just do this. You know, it's it's our official kind of flagship tournament thing. You know, instead of like letting outside groups write the thing and all this stuff, maybe we, you know we should just we should just do this, and then we'll 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 do it, and then we'll sell the modules, at, and then we'll do and you know, we'll publish the modules and sell them, you know, after after the tournament. And uh, this sounded sound like a great idea, and boy, was it a uh, it turned into kind of a logistics nightmare, <laughs> because the idea was is that we would each there would be four modules, uh, there were two there were two preliminary rounds. Or four preliminary rounds of which we would do two modules, uh, each having, you know, two halves, you know, of the preliminary, yep. and then there would be a semifinal round, and then finally a final round. And so on Thursday there would be two preliminaries, which meant that on Friday we could sell the module, or you know, on Thursday there would be like all the preliminaries, but on Friday or Saturday we could then sell all, sell modules of all the preliminaries without giving anything away. And people could like, you know, ooh, oh, I played in this, and I can buy this, this sort of thing. And then when the semifinal, we would do the the uh, 
the next one, the semifinal, and finally we do the same kind of thing. Well, that was a coordination nightmare for just trying to sell things first off. Uh, and it also meant that we, ha we had to write essentially uh, two, mo uh, two modules, each with two halves, that were all um, kind of identically balanced. You know, kind of, you know, that were basic. And so that was, so I did the uh, first module, uh, which was uh, Slave Pits of the Undercity. And basically, we had to figure out a formula so that when you put together the, uh, the encounters for it, uh, everybody was essentially kind of working from the same, same script of like, this is what we will have. And so we sat down and we said, okay, this is how many encounters we think we can, that they can get done in, in, the, in the play session time. And I think it was like eight or something like that. And then we literally broke them down into, okay, this is basic encounter. This is a basic encounter with a trap. This is, uh, this is new monster, you know, new monster introduction thing. This is, uh, you know, basic encounter with, you know, with a boss monster. And, you know, we worked out all this kind of like, these are the beats that you, that you have. And, uh, and then go write the modules. And then try to make them all into a continuous connected story. <laughs> so, so yeah, we we did this, and then we decided, wow, that was probably way more work than we ever expected. <laughs> so, did that change the way um, TSR you guys approached uh, tournament adventures in the future? Was there was there lessons learned? Uh, I think one of the big lessons learned is we never, I don't, we don't really, we didn't really try to do that big a a crazy coordinated release and thing uh, uh, after that. But we did do we did do tournament modules. We did tend to we tended to make them more, you know, one person doing all the work or or that sort of stuff. Uh, but you know the that the whole doing the tournament thing didn't last a long time. Uh, Gen Con got really big and, you know, it was hard to, you know, we had way, way other, you know, you know, more complicated things to deal with. Well, well, we are the beneficiaries of your logistical nightmare. Cause you know, the A series of course <laughs> is beloved by people. James, right. James reads not too long ago. You ran the entire A series, that's, correct? That's correct. From a one to a, well, they skipped a four only because I think, uh, and I know you've heard this many times. Players hate A4. They they think. Oh it, my God! I love A4. A4 I, is is the best part of the whole thing I, because. I, but they hate all it. through this thing. You know, you've been doing like, yeah, we're winning, we're winning. Oh, we got captured, and then it's like, and now we're going to put you in in you know, you you mighty you know I think you were at six level or something. I can't remember at yeah. that point. Yeah, characters. Yeah, four yeah we're going to put you in, in in unholy fear of kobolds with sticks. <laughs> I have a, I have a blackjack. I am powerful. Look at me. Yeah, it's it's uh, not so tough now, are you? <laughs> it, it, it really is the uh, 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 you know one of the things we were just talking before you came on the unfortunately the axioms of many of the players that we they no matter what the difficulty they always attack they never retreat um, and they don't they'd rather they'd rather be killed than captured is is kind of the thing that. Uh, you know, an order of player uh, level drained is worse than uh, captured is worse. Level drained, killed. You know, they, they'd rather have all that first. And uh, you know, that may be generational, but invariably uh, that seems to be the case. But uh, yeah, but we did do a one through three, and in fact, 
we ran it, first time I ever ran A1, which was just a couple of years ago, they actually were defeated in the first thing and they got captured, which made A2 kind of superfluous. So we went to A3 because they basically <laughs> skipped to A3. And then it's like, well, I can either have them go through A4. So I think in a tournament it works very well. And um, I know later they did the, you know, against the slaves, slavers, and that kind of tied those pieces together in, in that. So, uh, but, you know, people are commenting, you know, the, the, just the uh, love for that A series. So maybe a couple of quick questions from online while we're, uh, we're doing this. Um, I know we may be skipping ahead a little bit, but as far as the Oriental Adventures, um, you know, now we're kind of in the mid 80s. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, were you serious about removing the monk class from the AD&D game? Was that... Um, so, yeah, this one always gets people... I never quite under, understand why, why people get so upset about it. But um, so when we went to do... Uh, uh, AD&D and second edition and stuff, but basically, uh, Oriental Adventures, we needed a monk... We lost him. Uh-oh. Did a bunch of stuff there, uh, and but the thing is, looking later further on to second edition, which is where we really did remove like a bunch of these things, um, that the and I guess the uh, the assassin especially my my never they, the mechanics never worked well. Uh, with the rest of how the game system worked, because they were all tended to be like, oh, and then roll percent of dice, and oh, look, the guy's dead. And you know, the whole idea of just you know one shot kill kind of things was a, you know, kind of very much not in the spirit. And B, especially with something like the uh, uh, assassin, the idea that oh, you know, you're just rolling a table for what is essentially, you know, an assassin is all about kind of role playing and setting up that opportunity. And well, how are you going to assassinate him? And you know, the risk and all this sort of stuff. And and it was just sorry, my my wife just walked in. Hi. That's okay. Hi. <laughs> and uh, it was all about the risk and stuff. So it didn't make sense when you could easily just say, "Oh, I'm a magic user. I'm going to assassinate somebody." You know, and then you figure out, well, I've got these are my skills. This is how I'll do it. And uh, and so it was more a mindset than an actual like, you know, I'm a character class. You know, anybody can go assassinate somebody. It's just, you know, can you get away with it? Um, so there was that with the monk. It was because the rule books were basically kind of very kind of a core uh, Western European fantasy thing, and then the monk here kind of stuck out like stuck out like a real sore thumb, uh, and it was better seemed to be like, well, you know, we got this monk character in Oriental Adventures, and we have all this very you know stuff to support it much better there, uh, that that it was better just kind of left there, and that with the idea that you know at some point we'll do a new Oriental Adventures and we can bring you know we can bring the monk in because you know. We didn't know where we where things were going to go, but that was kind of an expectation. So, you know, yeah, I, I caught a lot of flack for this stuff, but I do think I was trying to do something that was healthy for the 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 group overall, especially the assassin. So much made for 
argument and frustration from people. It's like, you know, well, you know, you get you get to roll one die and kill a guy instantly. What kind of fun is that? I mean, I have to like, you know, risk everything and you know. So yeah, and then you know, assassins always wanted to wind up going off and assassinating half their party a lot of the time. <laughs> so, so it sounds like because right, right, Jim, Jim Ward had asked you to write an article, right, to kind of to to be somewhat provocative, right? Yeah. To, 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 yeah. And, and you go through. I read the article last night, and and you list. And I don't disagree with a lot of things you say, but you basically sort of ask which readers, which character classes should be killed off in second edition and you go through the ones that, and I wanted to ask you is, is when you wrote that, were you expressing how you felt or were, was part of you just trying to provoke? It was a mix of both. I mean, <laughs> this was Jim's really brilliant marketing thing, which was like, all right, let's, you know, we, we need to get, well, let's get some interest going. So yeah, let's write, write something really provocative. Let's like, you know, let's get them all like, you know, kind of like, Oh my God, paying attention, riled up a little bit. And, uh, and so that was the who dies article, kind of thing. Right, and you, right, because you tell and and so and 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 we agree with you, James and I. We agree on some of these. Like the, you didn't like the barbarian because James has said this. There's the article, right? Yeah, the okay. game was yeah. who dies. Is it just with just his name? So Jim Ward nowhere to be seen. No, nope, <laughs> no, we should, no, we should no, ask no. Jim about that. No one to be seen. So, so you do it. You do it, uh, Zeb. Um, so um, James has argued this, right? James, you've argued. A barbarian. You can play a barbarian as a fighter. You don't need a barbarian right. as a separate class, right? Yes. Yeah, and that's there's, pretty much that. There's uh, that's, a lot of again, them. I, I always feel like things, things like that, and that's like later on it's spelled with a bunch of the kits and and you know, barbarian was was uh, an example of what happens in every edition, which is you see power inflation. You know, as more supplements and stuff come out, it's like, oh, we need to give them something even better, and uh, and the next thing you know, you you know, you've got you know, kind of like elements of the game that are kind of like held together by, you know, gum and, and sticky tape uh, that uh, are straining at the seams because, you know, you've, you've, uh, you know, you've got this power inflation thing going on. And then, you know, next thing you know, you need, you need a new addition to kind of reset things and start over. Yeah, now, I think that, you know, so the barbarian was newer and more controversial. I think when you, when you wrote that article, I got the sense that you recognized that you were going to be potentially killing off character classes, which were more established, and therefore you had people who loved them. So like you talked about the, the, the druid, right? And you recognize, I think in your article, you acknowledge that there's going to be people out there who love druids. I mean, we have them, we have people like that on, they appear on the show. Um, the illusionist. I love the illusionist. So was, was that a concern that we you know about going after some of those other classes that were going to have such followers? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, believe me, when we were, when we started going into that and actually like, okay, uh, who would, you know, what classes will really, you know, will we actually not include? There was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of debate and a lot of, uh, and you know, I, I actually I didn't really want to kill the druid or the illusionist or anything like that. But part of the article was to try and you know, you know, spread a little like, hey, look, you know, think about all these things. Um, but what the but part of what happened is is I I had to spend a bunch of time figuring out how to how to get them more integrated kind of into the system so the druid becomes you know essentially a a, uh, a uh, cleric with you know spheres of influence kind of thing going on, you know and. Uh, and the illusionist, you know, led to the and the fact that 
looked at the illusionists and said, hey, I really like the, I love illusionists personally. Um, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the issue was, well, how can I take the idea of the illusionists and actually kind of systematize it? And that led to the whole schools of magic thing. And now you could have like wizards who specialized in, all, in other areas too. Um, so sometimes it actually allowed us to open up you know, possibilities as opposed to just say, nope, you know, this is all going away. But the monk and the assassin, yeah, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. He even says it's a goner. He's it's a goner. So, so did the letters, goner. when you even are, you even are talking about the pal, right, the paladin and the ranger, right? Which yeah. are, you know, and, and I think you, you stuck up, but you liked the paladin. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was to get people to think about these things, get them also to respond with, hey, I really do want, you know, how, how much angry mail would we get about, you know, you're threatening to kill my favorite character, that sort of thing, uh, so that we could come back and be able to say, oh, look, we listened to you, and we're not going to kill that guy. <laughs> and so did that work? So that was going to, that was my next question. Uh, I don't know. Was, I think there are some people who still haven't forgiven me to this day, so. <laughs> but but, did, but did, the, did the reader mail actually influence so was this just sort of like hey you had to say we've listened to you now we're going to do whatever we're going to do or did it actually have an and did any of the reader mail actually oh yeah it, it have an impact it did have an impact because there were there were classes that were you know that were sitting on the fence and i think the bard was really one of those and you know, that <laughs> sort of thing um um, you you uh, could have killed it. That was I would have been totally happy. That should have died. <laughs> James, James likes the re, the revised Bard in Dragon Magazine. Right, the Bard took so long to get anywhere. Yeah. Right, I mean it was you have to yeah. be twentieth level or something. But in later editions, it's it's now it's it's an anathema. Every, every, everything's a Bard now. So it's just that's my own. <laughs> no one should be playing an instrument while I'm in melee. That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah that's that. that Seriously. But we definitely definitely. Uh, it did. It did influence. It, it made clear that like any suggestion of removing the, you know such and such a class was just you know like nope we're going to keep it, and that then leads to the okay well how do I justify it kind of an effort, um, and and stuff. So yeah, it 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 had some influence. I mean we were we had we had a pretty good idea of how the response would go, but it was also good to see it and know and know for sure. What was what was the most? Was there one that was the most? support like that people supported the most that you know like it kind of reminds me like when when people wrote in to continue star trek or something like that was there one class that you're like oh my gosh okay this is we gotta I, keep I this. honestly i honestly don't remember uh you know to that level of detail so. yeah you know the only thing about the assassin and i didn't know this until we covered the assassin on the show is the one thing nice thing about the assassin too is the assassin had disguise ability and spying not not that you need to do spying a lot as a party but so that was news to me that it wasn't just simply killing people right i mean you want to have a spy you you, you send in yeah. an assassin so um okay, well, can you talk about part of what we tried to do is kind of split up some of those things and give them, you know, either give them as things that, you know, like the thief could learn or stuff like that. We tried, we tried to make it so that if you were clever, you could, you could build uh, a character that could do those things. Short of the yes, I roll percentile dice and kill you dead. Well, and we talked about that, right, James? When we did the assassins episode, that was one of the things that came up. Was do you just simply? I mean, how boring is that? That's a war game. You just, do you really just roll on this table? And James, I think the way you, way you played it is you would say you'd have to do exactly what Zeb is saying, right? Is you'd have to describe exactly what you'd have to go in and do it. And then when it comes time for the kill shot, you get to roll, right? James? Yeah. 
It, it was, and you know, we generally avoided assassins, and we've talked to a lot of people. Obviously, there was a need for these, you know, people hiring assassins to kill other player characters off. We never played that way, but if we did, or if we had one, there would be an elaborate, if you were going to hire an assassin, you'd have to work with the assassin and figure it out, because, you know, that just felt, uh, you know, non-sportsman-like to have this one role, and if, and then, you know, but later, when I became a DM and people would want to be an assassin, um, you know, they try to disguise themselves, and, you know, the same thing, if I could surprise, I can backstab, or this or that, it's, it, 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 it's problematic. It really should have been an NPC class in, in, and, you know, you can, or nothing at all. You could, like, like Zeb was saying, it would, would, it could be, anyone could assassinate. It's just the planning of it. Well, there's nothing magical about shanking someone kind of, kind of thing. <laughs> well, depends who you are. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I know for, um, for almost an absolute certainty that, you know, if, if if I had played an assassin and Gary had been running a game and I said, oh, I'm going to assassinate this guy, his first question is going to would have been, well, how are you going to do it? Right. And he would have made me go through all the figure out all those steps. Um, but the problem is that just didn't translate over to a lot of regular players. You know, they just looked at it and said, like, oh, there's percentile. OK, that's all I need to do. Right. right. So could you, could you tell us a little bit, so as I mentioned at the outset when I introduced you, two of your, you wrote many, many adventures, of course. Two of them uh, were honored by being put on Dungeon Magazine's list of the top 30 modules. Number 13, Dwellers of the Forbidden City, and number 16, <laughs> Isle of Dread. So could you talk a little bit about your, your making of those adventures? Oh, well, um, so Dwellers of the Forbidden City, we'll start with that because we kind of touched on it already. Uh, like I said, when I originally submitted, I had created this, uh, you know, very Conan-esque kind of lost uh, temple in the jungle thing, which had the little taskboy guys in it and all this sort of stuff. And um, then, so it was like, okay, we well, you need to write an adventure, so you know, let's take that thing and, and expand it out. Well, it needed it needed a whole lot more material to it, obviously. And one of the things that you know. Most of the modules, a lot of the modules up to that point, had been, oh, look, here's another dungeon. Here's another, you know, another hole in the ground. Uh, some of them were, you know, more worked out than others. And this one I really kind of wanted to make more about a, a more open-ended place. And so, you know, expanded the, the Lost Temple to become this whole little lost city out in the, out in the jungle. But then, you know, we only had like 16 or 32 pages for this thing, so you can't a, detail out a, an entire city in that amount of space and, and fill it out with like lots of individual stories and adventures. And B, I'm also kind of lazy and yeah. didn't really want to do all that work. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's so impressive. I mean, there's so much material here. It's, for, and, like, it's jam-packed. So it became kind of focused. You know, there's, there's the temple and the, and, you know, the kind of traditional go in here and do this part. And also, but then there, there's a lot of it that is just kind of like guidelines for here's other things that you can have happening in this in this city while you're kind of exploring. Um, and, you know, wanted to go with a lot of the pulp themes so there are different factions in the city that, you know, you can kind of play off on each other. Uh, it got to introduce the Tasloy, the Bullywugs, I think, or the Mongrel Men. Mongrel men. And... Um, and uh, that's where the Yuan T first make their appearance. And uh, um, you know, you're, you're going to do a jungle city. You got to have snake men. 
you know, it seemed like it seemed like a no brainer. Um, and uh, so that was, you know, and ex- just me kind of expressing a love of kind of old old pulp novels and 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 short stories and stuff like that that I pretty much you know read a lot of those uh, before I ever went to you know when I was growing up and uh, when I you know so yeah, I I think, after all of that yeah I think I saw uh, somewhere else online that you'd been asked if uh, I think it was at Red Nails had been oh, yeah. Red had Nails, been an influence probably, for that you know, I'm gonna go rip off something I'm gonna go try and get one that's good at <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and now, and, and Isle of Dread, of course, was a, was a joint effort, right, with you and Tom Moldvay. Yeah. So it was a, um, so for Isle of Dread, we we got to the point where we needed, you know, uh, we were doing the basic excerpt, and the basic set had you know an, a module in it, and so and they were saying, okay, now we got to, you know, we're doing the expert set, and we were writing these both at the same time. Uh, he was doing uh, basic, and I was doing expert, and. It was like, all right, you know, this is going to need to have some kind of adventure in it, and I'm going like, great, but I'm I uh, I don't have time to write a whole adventure and write the rules. Um, so Tom, because he didn't have to write an adventure because they had one, uh, had some, you know, we basically worked out that the that uh, we would we would co-write this, and then the matter is, how do you figure out how to do that where we're not stepping on each other's toes really horribly or anything like that? So, you know, we looked at this and said, you know, we'll do this island thing. Uh, it'll be a nice self-contained space, but it'll give us the idea of, you know, of the wilderness adventure that, you know, we want to show off and, you know, show people how to do. And so Tom said, Tom basically kind of took, we divided the island into two parts. There's the outer part and then there's the inner uh, part, which has the more traditional go crawl through the dungeon part. And so he basically, and Tom had a love of dinosaurs and, and that sort of stuff. So he said, okay, he'll do the outer part, and I would do the inner part. Um, and so a lot of what he did, you know, he made the, you know, we wanted to teach people you know, how to do wilderness adventures. We wanted to show them, you know, how to construct, you know, encounter tables and all this sort of stuff. And and also kind of that whole, here you're on an area, it's a lot of freeform kind of play you can do. So uh, set up a lot of locations and and a lot of encounters and basically built out all out he and i both did monsters uh for for it that we you know new monsters because you always had to have new monsters and these things too and then i i went and did the kind of the oh and then here's actually a plot a story plot going on in the in the center part of the island in the volcano area um with the Kopru and the and the ancient temple, I mean, I have this thing about ancient temples and pulpy things. What can I say? <laughs> um, and uh, and that actually that work divided up really well because each of us, as long as we were kind of coordinating kind of the basic stuff, we had pretty much you know could work out whatever we wanted. And so we you know we were doing very much the kind of you know crash landed on the on the King Kong kind of island, and uh, basically again hitting every kind of uh, trope and cliche we could find. <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting about that is, is you know, as a kid, and I wasn't much a reader, I, mean, I read Lord of the Rings, but that was even, at, I started playing D&D before I read, whereas I think a lot of people read and then they played, you know, of my generation, nine, ten years old when we started playing. Um, 
they weren't tropes because we didn't know the tropes because we had, it was, oh, this is really cool. Dino, I mean, we knew dinosaur, Lost Island. What was the, the uh, when they go down to the bottom of the center of the earth and there's the dinosaurs in there, oh, yeah. that's what it kind of reminded me. Yeah, that, but we didn't know what it was. it was. It was the TV show that was modeled based on the old things at the time. Um, my question, so how did you land that you were going to work? I mean, uh, I, I certainly count the basic and expert rules. You know, when you look at all the retro clones that have come out, um, they're all based on this. This is, you know, the legacy of... I still, uh, run, I still run games with, with, with those because, you know, they're great for conventions. I don't have to, you know... The rules are simple, uh, and you can you can play fast, and people have a good time. And, and I think a lot of people have landed, um, you know, like a, again in our generation, um, where if they started before, they were very deep. You know, we've kind of had this bifurcation. If you started before 1980, you had that DIY old bot, you know, the old school game. It had a different vibe. Um, I grew up, you know, the, the Holy Trinity, we talked about the books and there was, everything had to be written down, but we've all kind of, as we get older, the idea of trying to figure out encumbrance and, and figuring out, you know, how much tax you're going to pay and experience points becomes, <laughs> it's just, or, or performance you reviews. You use those rules? <laughs> yeah. Well, the, you know. The, roll, for, roll for disease. It's yeah, been a month. For, yeah. You know, if you're in a hot climate. Uh, so many people have landed on that the you know the basic and expert rules you know Moldve Cook is uh, I'm sure you know is is kind of the sweet spot for a lot of folks. Um, so you know I guess my question is oh yeah absolutely uh, and you know every time we're sitting here figuring out surprise by segment and um, initiative and simultaneous weapon speed we go yeah I think basic and expert that sounds that sounds really good. So how did you land uh, that as an assignment? It was, was that a plump assignment or was that a, oh, God, I got to write a rule book? Uh, no, no it, was a, it was a plump assignment, believe me. We, we all, uh, everybody always wanted to do kind of like, you know, the big projects if they could. Uh, or, you know, we were perfectly aware of, of that. Um, it's Part of it is was just, you know, scheduling. You know, we had, we only had like, I think four maybe five designers on staff at that point. Um, maybe it might've been only four and, you know, you, a lot of it was looking at like, well, you know, who has time, what, what time's available. Part of it was also, uh, experience that Tom and I were probably the, the two most experienced designers on the staff at the time. And, uh, and so, you know, it's like, look, you, it looks like you guys have time. We'll rearrange the schedule a little bit. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Then you get, on the task it's a lot of it was you know who did who did gary feel and who did gary uh, you know feel a good trust to do stuff like these things too and you know it's kind of you know fortunate in that he trusted both tom and i to to do these things and uh and and it sounds it sounds like it was a good assignment for you because you you have read online that you like simple. You think simple is better for games like this. And so, did you feel? And I wanted to ask you. I assume when you you, you know when you were in Nebraska, you probably started playing first edition because the seventy seven the play, you know Monster Manual comes out seventy eight player's oh, handbook. Yeah. Did you feel was it your own personal belief? You maybe you didn't say it around you know the the offices that that one e was a bit too rules heavy. Well, I think I, I, I don't know if I actually said. It. I think everybody knew that there were a lot of rules in One E that people didn't use, uh, but they were there so that for people who wanted them, right? 
but you know, there was always the idea that you know you use the rules that that work, and you just don't you know don't pay attention to the others. I mean, we uh, and in our you know general game sessions that we would play at TSR at the, in that time period, yeah, we didn't use you know we didn't bother with encumbrance. We didn't generally bother with, worry about that. We didn't worry about you know the uh, the uh, weapon was it the uh, a weapon speed. Segment, you know, weapons, yeah. fans, you know, initiative segments or anything like that. It was just like, because, you know, that was just going to take way too long to get through any kind of a fight. But we knew it was there because there were people who wanted, who liked that kind of level of detail and wanted that level of detail. Uh, so, you know, it was, it wasn't that like, oh, we think that this is uh, rules heavy. We just all viewed it as, oh, you use the rules that you like out of it. And so we were always a little amazed later on or at least I was always a little amazed later on when people were like, no, 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 it's got to have, you have to do all these things or it's not, it's not, you know, you're not doing it right. And I was like, well, how, how does that work? <laughs> you know, you're, if, if you're, if you're having, you know, it was more about use the rules at work and have fun. So who, so who was the audience? So, cause you know, you had a basic set, of course, you had Holmes basic, which I assume was getting old by that point in time is 77. So whose idea was it? Gary's idea that you needed a basic set, and and who was the target audience? Well, the the target audience was we were trying to uh, trying to appeal to basically get these uh, into. This was something that we could sell in like the Walmart or or that sort of stuff, and it would be for you know, you know, frankly, a younger audience. Our 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 audience had started way back when this was originally done. It was very much college age and kind of you know. That sort of thing, but you know, as it became more popular, that audience actually started becoming, you know, moving younger. You know, as as basically D and D started being, you could find it in places other than college bookstores, which was kind of where you initially could find it. Uh, the audience went younger, and so then it became like, well, we need to provide a somewhat friendlier, um, you know. Starting, you know, starting point for a lot of people, especially when we, you know, we started discovering, you know, kids that were, you know, 14, 12, this sort of stuff, and even sometimes even younger, were, you know, either being given the you know, the books or, 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 you know, picking them up, and they were having a hard, you know, and it was a challenge for them, uh, which doesn't mean that they couldn't do it, but it was a challenge, and so we wanted to, we wanted something that we could sell on a, on a bigger, we were always chasing the mass market. We were going to break into the mass market, damn it, one way or another. Never did, but we tried. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to me, the, the fact that the game, a, a complete game, you know, is, is on 60 pages here, and then if you want to do more, because you, is another 60 pages, you have everything you need to, to, to do that, and it's concise, is a testament to the work that you produced, and um, you know, and it was interesting because we never, I never really understood that it was two product lines. I, I, and you know, it was only later did it really it was like you had this kind of bifurcated audience almost. Did was that did that come? Was that a a, a plan thing, or did it just kind of occur? And then you know, it was a strange schizophrenia of of so. Because the idea had always they said, yeah, we should do the, I think the original idea was the basic set when it was even even before we did what's the basic set would be the lead in to, uh, you know, to then, then, then you would be led into expert or not an expert, but into advanced. And, and, but 
the rules were never set up that way. You know, it was yeah. always set up like, oh, it's a separate creature. And then if I go to this other one, I have to change a bunch of the rules and, and it's not the same. And so we, um, we wanted, you know, the, the idea was always like, wow, that would be really cool. But we just never seemed to quite get it, you know, sorted out with a real, with a real consistent plan where we did like, here is an intro to AD&D, and then, you know, we flow from there. And they, they just kind of became two separate, you know, they just, I don't know, it was just bad planning on our part in some ways. Yeah, the, the Red Book makes perfect sense. Okay, I, I want to learn D&D, but then you read halfway through it. Oh, these are in the expert. Okay, well, I thought, isn't that, isn't that advanced D&D? No, 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 we have an expert. And then you're like, oh, that's great, because now I don't have to stop. Well, then... Why am I playing A, D, and D? It, it, it I, we had them all, but it was, it wasn't clear if you were supposed to switch over or not. And then, obviously, when Menser came out and they kept going that way, oh, well, you could basically stay on this second yeah. path. I mean, by that point, we had established it as kind of a second line, and yeah, so it, 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 it was never going to like be the thing that merged over into AD&D at that point for, for a long yeah, cause time. Because then, yeah, then you had Menser Basic. I mean, that's right. I mean, not that long after that, right? I mean, Menser right, Basic was like, hey, yeah, so you've got to, that, that would see. I, one of the first things I had to do, because I came out of a deep freeze, not having played role-playing games for close to 30 years, I had to learn, you know, the, what, OD&D Brown Box, OD&D White Box, Holmes Basic, AD&D, then the, the Basic Expert, right? Uh, the, the Mulvey Cook, and then Menser Basic, right? And now and we're just up to the mid '80s. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah, we uh, didn't have always a real clear marketing plan. <laughs> well, but is it? You know, so many people. I mean, we had. I can't remember who it was that we had on the show. That we asked them what edition they play, and they said they just play. So in other words, you know, a lot of it, right? I mean, James, like you said it was a, it was a lot. It was a it was a, a mashup yeah. for a lot of people, and, and and you know, that's fine, right? I mean, I don't know that you need. A lot of, of rules, or just pick whichever ones you want. I mean, right? the combat rules in you know uh, you know BX is what most people think combat should be because it's simple, yeah. straightforward. It's 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 you show people that like oh I get it. As soon as you say okay, now I'm going to show you what's in the DMG, and you start like their eyes roll in the back of their head. So um, we basically stole half of the the core mechanics. And then we use the flavor in AD and D. It was all you know, all the treasures and all the monsters and all yeah. the cool stuff. Um, but it really influenced uh, what we did. Um, and so, you know, that that whole process of it was you know, as again, and I I wasn't a hobbyist. We went to the Barnes and Noble or the B Daltons, so our world was very limited to whatever they provided, which was that one wire rack of of books. And so, yeah. you know, it was a Oh, it's the next TSR thing. I picked it up. Thank you very much. So, uh, but again, uh, this, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about second edition real quick, but, you know, of the two major works during your time, w- were you surprised uh, that the, the BX has, his legacy has continued so far and, and has such reverence versus, you know, second edition, which is really, you know, the Herculean task of taking something that's. Yeah, twi- I'm. I'm, I'm- I never, I knew, we never expected it to. I, I mean, we never anticipated. We never anticipated that it would last this, this long. Um, but, but I'm, I'm very happy for it. Uh, it's, you know, 
and I and I can see why because it is it is a really useful. I just want to play a quick game and don't want to like you know have to spend a lot of time you know getting all the characters worked out, all this sort of stuff. Uh, so it makes it much easier to do a, a pickup game with that. It makes it you know, faster. And like I said, I for me it's it's my preference for the game I run at conventions because I can I can put something together faster and I can um, you know explain it to people faster um and and, and, and what, what was your oh you got some yeah no, just a oh, character that, sheet you know the old yeah. it's two pages it's got big things it doesn't have a last will and testament that's the only part we would add to it right dan we would add the golden rod <laughs> uh last will and testament yeah you need the will yeah right you can't this is not a legitimate uh contract between you and the dm without a will but uh it's Big boxes. There's, you know, 20 items on here, and you know what you're doing. You don't have 48 proficiencies and everything else. So um, kudos. Again, I think everyone has played this, and this is what they, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that, that, that's, you know, you look at all these retro clones, a vast majority of them are based on BX, you know, they, they, or Beckme, the, just that whole spirit of that. Um, not, you know, there are as AD&D retros, but they're, uh, there's less of them than this. So I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I, w- I was just going to ask about uh, is that what your philosophy was with, with 2E. So I, I know that because you've said you liked Simple, um, w- w- you know, what, what was your philosophy when you started drafting 2E? What, what were you seeking? Other than, of course, obviously, TSR wanted to sell product, but uh, what, what was your philosophy? So... So 2E basically, uh, it was the it was the first time we tried to deal with the oh look we've put out a whole bunch of expansion expansions well actually not first time because that's AD and D was some of that to the original box sets but and we put out a bunch of expansions there are rules conflicts there are um, you know there's there's really useful material in expansions that doesn't get used because it's not part of a core set this sort of thing. And so the original idea had been to kind of like let's just let's just you know get the conflict straightened out let's uh, let's reorganize it get it so that you know we've got a good core clear set of core material and and you know that was the goal um, the then we started working with it and that goal expands to to well you know we need to we need oh look we need to fix this or hey we could do this over here. You know, or or you know that sort of stuff, and a lot of it was just trying to resolve the, you know, basically people played D and D, and D, but most most every place that played it had their own set of house rules, and some of those house rules were like, okay, yes, you know, barbarians are allowed, or or this is, or you know, this is how we do this, and and this sort of stuff, and. And some of that was stuff drawn from Dragon Magazine, from various uh, expansions and supplements. We had had, you know, uh, Unearthed Arcana, Oriental Adventures, uh, Wilderness uh, ad- um, Adventures, and, and uh, all these, you know, box sets that come out all the way up to, or books that came out all the way up to, including Manual of the Plains. And they all would introduce, like, some new stuff that was like, oh, that's kind of cool. We could use that. Uh, but it was all scattered all over the place. So a good deal a good deal of it was like bringing all that together. So that you know then became oh look we I you know in Oriental Adventures I introduced this idea of, of uh, 
non-weapon proficiencies. Let's take that system, bring it in to uh, second edition, because people are always complaining that we don't have a decent skill system, and they're always like confused about like how do you know how do you resolve a bunch of those things? Let's bring that in. Uh, then you know we want to you know we want the illusionist. Let's expand the you know use that as an excuse to sp expand the the whole roles of uh, magic users. Uh, and and so you do a lot of this, and then here's how people are actually playing, you know, like the combat system. Let's get the combat system closer to what people are actually doing as opposed to the, you know, this other system, the system that's there. Um, and, you know, we have good ideas. Uh, Steve Winter worked out the whole Thaco idea. And so... Uh, so we, so we, it, is, it is Thaco, not Thaco? Yeah, we always called it Thaco. Okay, you heard it here first. That's right. Our, I don't know if you heard it here first. Probably didn't. We weren't. We weren't first. We like to think we were. Okay, it's Thaco. Thank you. Yeah. Is it Drow or Dro? Uh, Drow is what we usually would refer to it as. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, All right. The uh, and you know we were and there were things that we were told that we couldn't do. Um, uh, the big things we were told that we couldn't do is we could not invalidate like a ton of the. Uh, uh, first edition material, especially like modules and all this sort of stuff that, you know, that stuff still had to be kind of like, you know, something you could use with second edition. It might take a little work, but you can use it, right? Because, you know, we had a warehouse full of this stuff and our our sales, marketing and finance department were, were like basically like terrified that suddenly we would have like a mountain of, of product that they couldn't sell, um, which was, you know, would be bad. Um and and so you know that established limits. So like there were things that I know that both Steve and I wanted to do, like right the the armor class numbering from ten down to negative something or other, right? Never made sense. Yeah, descending you know? armor class. Yeah, it was like that was like a naval. Wasn't it like a naval miniature rule or yeah, something? Yeah, it was, it was something that had been brought over from you know, various uh, tabletop miniatures games, uh, and you know, and never it was never expected that, that it would get into the the level of uh, you know, negative number calculation and all the other things that, that re got re required that made it kind of cumbersome. Uh, but, you know, we went, we had just said, you know, make a whole lot more sense if we started from one and went up, right? And then we could just go up endlessly and it wouldn't, you know, you'd have no problem. Uh, but that was like vetoed because, no, that means like we've got a whole bunch of product that becomes, you know, much more difficult to use. Uh, so you know we'll, we're going to keep the we're going to keep things kind of the way they they are, and so a lot of it was. And at the time, even I was explaining to uh, groups that I'd talked to that yeah, we're we're just trying to in many ways, you know, make your make a bunch of your house rules official, you know, like you know, so that you know we know that you're doing these things when you play. We want them to basically, you know. Put those in, and uh, then everybody will have kind of once again a kind of a standardized set to go from. So it was it was always intended to be something that flowed more or less seamlessly from uh, first edition into second edition, uh, without you know requiring massive changes, as opposed to like when you get to uh, second edition to third, where yeah there were massive changes, uh, and it, it but. You know, the consequently, it was very hard to use second edition material in a third edition of game without sitting down and spending a lot of time in advance. 
And with second edition, and I, I stopped playing before second edition came out. Second edition, though, is that the one where the half orc is removed and, and demons and devils are? Yeah. Are, are, <laughs> so was that? And so, yeah, so I know that was controversial, right? So a lot of people, I guess, were oh, about that. I think I think it's controversial because people just wanted to be outraged about something in so many ways. I mean, frankly, we just renamed demons and devils. We kept them. Uh, we just gave them different names because all we were doing was providing. Uh, you know, fodder for for critics that wanted to bash D and D, and all we wound up doing was giving fodder for fans who wanted to bash D and D. Well, yeah, and I and I don't I don't have the original Player's Handbook uh, Second Edition. I, I don't think it's uh, my friend bought it, and we were within a year of that because I turned twenty in nineteen eighty nine, nineteen ninety. And we were, we were like a, a lot of folks, it was the end of the hobby for us. And, uh, but a lot of folks continued. I, I remember reading, because it's like second edition, what is this? I remember reading the, 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 your preface. And you, know, you talk about, you know, because really what struck me was, besides the evocative cover, it wasn't the gritty, you know, them plying the gems off. It was this big book, and your name was on it. That was... You know, it's like the first time it really struck me as a 19-year-old that, you know, because I didn't understand the back. We don't now. We know the history, but no one knew the history then. All it was was, well, where's where's this Gary guy? Why is he not on on the book? And is this a different game? And then you look through, and like, no, it's not a different game. It kind of combined everything. Um, and like you said, it, it, uh, you put here, you know, we've we collected, organizes all the things that you as players have been doing for years, just like you said. Uh, but it, did you, you know, what was that responsibility of really, you know, being the almost the way the face of AD and D was? Because whether you like it or not, you said there was a lot of people involved. It was your name who's the lead designer. Your, uh, did you think that way, or because um, obviously Gary hired you, but now he's not with the company? Yeah, well, I don't know if we thought like, wow, I'm, I didn't, never thought, wow, I'm going to become the face of D and D or anything like that. Certainly not that. But there was there was and there was definitely a lot of internally, you know, my name was on it uh, in terms of like the, the the designer. But everything we we did, we we evaluated with a team of people. Um, you know, we had regular sit down meetings with Jim Ward and all the designers and you know uh, other and editors, and we'd kind of go like, okay, this is what we're this is what we're planning to do, and there would be debate and argument and. And this sort of stuff. So, you know, it was it was something that was was fashioned as you know, you know I, I don't want to say consensus because that will make it sound horrible and watered down, which it wasn't. But it was something that we were trying to make sure they they were watching us to make sure we weren't going off the rails. Uh, that uh, you know that we were still trying to serve what it is that everybody could see. This is what D and D was supposed to be and and be about. Um, and, you know, also as part of it was to kind of get it back to that original uh, Gary preface of, you know, hey, these are these are uh, these are guidelines and these are not, you know, these are not hard and fast rule, you know, absolute must play rules all the time. And that's the way I've always viewed the game is it's uh, is a lot of it is just guidelines that you figure out how to how to best work for you. Um, and, you know, there was there was some strange, you know, in Dragon Magazine between, you know, uh, AD and D and second edition, there were some strange, oh, it must be absolutely this way kind of thing, arguments going on. 
And we wanted to kind of move away from those and get back to the, hey, you know, this is your game. And, you know, play it the way you, you know, you should play it the way you want to play it. And, and, and Zeb, so, so you stay there to 1994, which, you know, we've had other guests on the show, which, you know, unfortunately for them, you know, they, they didn't get to stay that long. It, yeah. it sounds like you made it through, you know, those reductions in forces, which happened. Uh, yeah, there were the, scary times in there, yeah. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I assume, you know, I mean, I assume that you were probably worried that you, know, you would be visited uh, by somebody uh, at some point told told you had to go. What what was it? What was it like to not have Gary around anymore? Um, it was. It, it's complicated. Uh, Gary hired us, but Gary had always been kind of, you know, after the first few years had always been kind of more involved in kind of management and, and, uh, you know, we had, we had, a design, we had design managers and stuff that were running more or less running the design department. And then Gary had his own kind of like, you know, I'm going to design these things over here. And some, so a lot of times there was never, it was never like, wow, we're working with Gary. And we, we, you know, we almost never worked with Gary on a daily basis at, after a certain point, uh, you know, he was in charge of the company and he had, he had, uh, you know, he had ultimate power to say, yes, this is what we're going to do, or, you know, or no, this is not what we're going to do. Um, and, you know, would look over products, not all of them, but would, you know, products that were important, significant, he would look over. But you were, uh, you were often kind of, you know, we were often very separate from him. Uh, he had his own kind of collection of people that he dealt with on a more, uh, uh, regular basis. Many of them were not actually kind of officially, you know, staff members, but, you know, were, were people who were, you know, contributing. I think the the person who had the most daily contact with him turned out, turned in to be, out to be Frank Menser uh, of any of the actually on-staff design type people. Because uh, you're director of work. What? I'm sorry. No, no please continue. No, I was going to say, I mean, early on when I got hired and, and stuff, I, I had a lot of contact with him. And so, you know, that's why I think, you know, that's why he was, he, uh, he trusted me on, on a lot of things because, you know, he knew that I had, you know, we had worked together and spent a lot of time on things early on. Uh, so, you know, did he you had have a the, sense of who I was than a lot of the other designers. Did you have the pleasure of going through some of his games? So did you get to see what he's like as a DM? I only played in a couple of his games uh, that that he did because uh, by that point, you know, he didn't. You know, he had he had his his regular he had a regular gaming group initially, um, and so they were very tight. And you know, and uh, and then as uh, the company got bigger, he had less time for for games in general to to run games. Uh, and when he did, he tended to kind of go towards the people you know who. If I was of his regular group, I played in a, in a couple of them. One was, uh, and Jim Ward was in this one also, where he basically, uh, we all gathered up and we didn't create characters. He did basically said, he turned off the lights, he turned on the lights again. And he said, what are in your pockets? And we went, and literally, what were what was in your pockets, right? And we went through and kind of figured out what was in our pockets. And uh, they, we had all fallen asleep and uh, woken up in Greyhawk as us. Hmm. Oh, <laughs> and I we then had to, and then we, we then had to like try and you know 
you know, make our make our way kind of in the world. And 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 as Jim said, it was ultimately the case in frustration because you know we'd say like, oh yeah, wow, we know science. Hey, we can do this. And he's like, and you know we'd present something, and then he'd go like, oh yeah, wizard, come over here. See, see, we can do that. Like, oh great, fine, thanks. What? <laughs> <laughs> So, so did Gary stat you? Was he like, yeah, okay, you need to do uh, your kind charisma is an eight? Yes, uh, it didn't last. I mean, it only lasted a, se- a couple of sessions, and then it was like, yeah, this is not working for us. <laughs> I had not heard about that game. So that, that, that's a new one for me. Uh, uh, James, do we have any chat questions? Yeah, out I mean, there, I don't uh, ignore chat people. Yeah, there's. Uh, yeah, we've got some folks. Um, you know, because you also worked on other uh, outside of D and D games. You know, as part of TSR, were there other role playing games that you worked on? Uh, oh yeah, uh, like Indiana Jones was was one of them. Is that correct? Oh yeah, Indiana Jones, the Conan role playing game. Uh, oh, my wife reminds me of the Bullwinkle and Rocky Party game role playing oh, game. Oh, <laughs> there you go, Dan. A Christmas present. Uh, I'll look forward yes. to seeing that. Find and, that on eBay. Uh, Probably two hundred dollars on eBay. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. I'm worth it. What? Mm-hmm. I, I told Dan I'm worth it. He needs to go find that yeah. on eBay. On for eBay. Me. That's yeah. <laughs> hey, it's and, the only it's the only role playing game I know of that has plastic hand puppets. Awesome. You, I got to <laughs> get that for me. Come on. <laughs> um, and, well, and of course, and you did yeah. as your last hurrah. You did Planescape, right? Yeah, as yeah. your last hurrah, which oh, I know yeah. you're, you're you're rightfully very proud of. Oh yeah. Well, I'm. I'm there were a lot of people that contributed really wonderful things to that one. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun to do and it, you know, has survived well, I think in some ways it's probably complete in some ways I look at it and realize, wow, you know, as a, as a setting, it's really interesting, but boy, it's kind of completely unplayable in many ways. <laughs> well, <laughs> cause much it's so of this, weird yeah. and, 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 uh, it, it's, uh, it's a challenge to, to, uh, to set up really, uh, a, a long running campaign in it, but it was fun to do. So, well, and, I think, yeah. yeah, I think second edition, you know, I didn't play a whole lot. I didn't play much of it, but the games that were, I, I really was moving into computer games. I'm an IT guy. And I really thought the future, A, was a lot easier to play a computer game than try to get people together. Um, and, you know, second edition, so many of the campaign settings, you know, whether it was Caratour, Dark Sun, uh, Planes, uh, Spelljammer, all these have lived on to where, you know, now in fifth edition, everyone's like, okay, what's the next campaign setting are they going to steal from to bring forward because it's so evocative? And I think it changed. Well, that was, that was the, one of the things that happened. Um, and, and in some ways that's one of the things that happened after, uh, uh, Gary was no longer part of the company is, uh, prior to that, uh, because Greyhawk was there and, uh, everything supposedly, needed, you know, should be part of, you know, Greyhawk was the campaign setting, but it was Gary's campaign setting, which mean that meant that anything that was going to go in Greyhawk had to be approved by Gary or had to come from Gary initially, one of the two. Um, and he didn't approve a whole lot of stuff because, A, he was very busy and, you know, we had we had to put out a huge amount of stuff. Uh, and so consequently, there was actually very little uh, support you know, there wasn't really an organized like here. We're going to do you know fifty products for Greyhawk and build out because that would require Gary to like review and approve and and do all this sort of stuff, and it just didn't happen. Um, and so, literally, when we were getting towards the tail end of that, that's one of the reasons that Forgotten Realms got created was we just needed a home to put all this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, so that got created. And then once Gary left, 
suddenly that restraint of, oh, it must be Greyhawk or, or not at all. In fact, Greyhawk was kind of out of the picture pretty much at that stage, uh, meant that uh, we had a whole bunch of very creative people who had, you know, had kind of these suppressed, um, you know, ambitions and desires of, and ideas. And, uh, and, and so it was like pulling the cork off that bottle and it's like, oh, wait, we could do all these really cool things. Um, and then it was just a matter of convincing, you know, you needed to convince a company to put it on schedule. And that led to this giant explosion of settings. And yeah, we ran it, we, we fell into this trap of creating too many settings uh, that, you know, so we couldn't support all of them. Uh, and, you know, some of them, some of them flew, some of them didn't. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was the, it was in part the explosion of creativity we got from uh, the staff designers because, you know, we suddenly had the freedom to propose what we would like to do. Um, and, and interestingly, I noticed this. So I assume when you were a designer there, I assume the, the main person you reported to, I assume, was, was Lawrence Schick, correct? Uh, yeah, when, Lauren, when, when, uh, when it first started there, yeah, we, uh, Lawrence was our, uh, basically our design director. Um, and then, and then when you go, you go to work for ZeniMax online studios, correct? And <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and, and, you, and, and, and you find? Well, actually I, you, you missed a step in there. Okay. So, uh, Lawrence hired me into TSR. Basically he was, uh, he was a design director. So he had to basically, uh, you know, approve, you know, yes, we'll hire this guy. He looks good. So he hired me as a game designer. He left after like four or five years or something. I can't remember exactly when, um, uh, and went off to, uh, work in, uh, the early, early in the uh, video game industry. Um, and then in 94, I got a call from Lawrence saying, hey, there's this uh, video game. He's setting up a, uh, uh, a design uh, group for this new this, uh, company that wants to get into video games. Would I be interested? He's got, a, he's got a project he thinks I'd like. Would I be interested in, in you know, leaving TSR and going to do video games? And I'd been TSR for 15 years. I'd done pretty much everything you know, I could think of to, to do there. Uh, I was, you know, at the top of their design ladder and there was not a whole lot of growth room there and the video game company was going to pay me better. So, so, so Lawrence hired me away from TSR and I went to work for this video game company. Well, that place augured in after about oh, a year and a half or so, <laughs> but I was by that point now working in video games and moved and bounced around. So I bounced around in video game, uh, studios, uh, different, did different projects, for from 94 uh, to about then about 2009 uh, I got hired in at Zenimax I go to work at Zenimax and I find who's got the office next to me but Lawrence <laughs> who had been hired there about you know two months two or three months before me <laughs> it's come full circle yes <laughs> Can I, uh, James, any, because I've got a couple of final questions. James, I don't know if you have anyone on the chat, though. I want to make sure we don't ignore it because people were so excited to have Zeb on. I just want to make sure that if anyone out there has questions. Yeah, um, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, obviously people are praising the work. You know, 2E is, is for us 1E years, and you hate to do that, the addition wars, but uh, I think it was more my issue that. I was leaving, you know, RPGs didn't leave me. I left RPGs at that point. So, uh, but 
when I started playing video games, especially the you know Baldur's Gate, you know that's a two E, and um, kept that embers going to when you know I, I got back into it. What's your what you know when you look back at your career there? Uh, uh, what's your greatest RPG accomplishment? You know, both whether it's D and D or non D and D. What do you say? Wow, that's I'm so glad that that was I'd successful. Probably, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, pretty straight. Pretty safe to say. Probably two E is is like the one. Of, certainly the biggest and straight up just of a rules kind of a thing. And then settings wise, Planescape simply because it's the one that all the elements just really came together pretty much in a way that really you know, created a singular thing. I mean, uh, we we were so lucky to get Tony Delizzi to do the art. Uh, the uh, I had great fun writing a completely strange you know, setting, um, and uh, even even to the layout, kind of like it's like like we're going we wanted to embrace something that was just not what TSR normally would do, and uh, you know and that and that all worked and actually worked in a way that was like yeah this isn't you know complete madness. The uh, so, um, did you work on the Marvel superhero game while you were there? Uh, I wrote a uh, at least one adventure for it. Um, the uh, the fourth fourth module in the Flames of War series. It's basically it's the the dark future Sentinels, you know, uh, yeah, imprisoned mutants kind of thing. It was a lot, it was the final module in the series. Um, I think I think I wound up writing modules for everything except. Gamma World, and I don't think I ever did a uh, um, a Ravenloft module. Uh, but most, for almost all the other games, I, I wound up writing at least something for them. Mm. What? So, other than uh, excluding uh, Forbidden City uh, and Isle of Dread, is there a D and D adventure that you're most proud of? So, those two, of course, you know they make the, the top thirty list. Is there is there another one out there? They're like, you know, yeah, those two were good, but this is the one that I really am proud of stuff. Wow, I have to sit here and think here a little bit. Um, uh, definitely liked the Master of the Desert Nomads Temple of Death uh, one that was done for uh, Basic Expert, or I guess it was Expert, really. Um, in part because it took this kind of impossible situation of, you know, there's a giant army out there and you're sent off into war-torn lands and how do we make a batch of adventures, you know, kind of mesh with a with this big grand events and uh, felt that that one worked really well. So that's another one that's a particular favorite of mine. And the... Uh, <sighs> I and mean, I, there are so many I can't remember. I can, I can, I can remember the ones that didn't work as well. <laughs> That's often true with people, right? You remember, you remember the things that didn't go well. You're probably too hard on yourself. What would what would you, as a designer? So so many people we we enjoy writing our own adventures, of course. What would and and people now the great thing about it now is people can publish their own adventures quite easily in the internet age. What advice would you give to to someone who wants to say I say I want to write an adventure? And I thought it was entertaining. How I think it was it Al Hammock who said back in the day you guys you had to have it had to be like sixteen or thirty two pages because that's the way they were printed. So, but so well, we don't have those restrictions. Yet. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to write an adventure to make it good and memorable? Oh uh, well, uh, 
the first advice I have is go read a whole bunch of uh, fantasy and pulp and all this other stuff. You know, get if you want it to be memorable, you know, don't be afraid about stealing ideas from other people. Just don't copy their ideas. Uh, you know, as people noted, the you know the whole Dwellers of the Forbidden City is definitely owes a lot to like uh, uh, Robert E. Howard's Red Nails story, right? Uh, and but because there, you know, um, you're looking for what's the feel, what's the tone of that story. How can I how can I recreate that in something that's you know sim similar-ish but still very different? You know, it is not that story. Um, and so, you know, read through, find what you like, and then say, okay, how can I make an adventure that feels like that, that that has that feel? Don't copy the world. Don't copy the thing, but capture the feel of it. And then if you haven't written an adventure before, uh, you know, lay out your ambitions, lay out your ideas, and then cut. Cut kind of ruthlessly. <laughs> <laughs> um, because you will always have more ideas than you can fit. Uh, you'll have more ideas than actually belong together. Um, a big part of it is figuring out, you know, it's it's a box. You know, a module is a box, essentially. Uh, what belongs in that box, you know, put in. And there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff that's going to stick out in horrible angles and just throw that stuff out. You know, uh, so that your job as a designer is to kind of set, you know, create this package that all feels like it goes together. So, you know, do your big plan and then say, well, that's a nice idea. Throw it away. There's always another a there's always another module there's always another thing so you can always save that idea for later um and and ideas ideas are the easiest part of the thing to come up with you know it's then executing it so it's nice and polished and everything that's the hard part yeah i remember so we, we have a, a tournament that we run we, we like to run each summer and i remember running to james because i'd read the conan story and there's a conan story where he is alone he's in prison he's dumped in this dungeon and it's all dark and he's got to find his way out and it's very creepy and i said to james oh, this would be amazing for an adventure and james is basically yeah that's a4 <laughs> Right, someone has already come up with that idea. You know, used it. So, um, real quick, quick too is who, if you're willing to say, do you remember whose idea it was to come up with the slavers? Because the slavers are now such an iconic part of Greyhawk and D and D. Do you remember who said, you know, why don't we do slavers? I think I think Lawrence was a lot of the initial driver of of what the kind of general you know broad scope plot might. You know, well, it would be. He definitely had this idea for you know he, you know, A four is all his. He had the idea. Of, he knew exactly how he wanted things to end, so he could do that adventure, right? Um, and so, you know, I think from from that, yeah, it was he was very much the like in in my memory the kind of the the architect of kind of the the overall. Here is the kind of big story, and then we uh, you know we we figured out how to break it up and and into parts and, and and do that part okay all right james well um you know going back to your non uh dnd &D, a lot of people were fascinated that you know tsr got indiana jones and marvel and conan um do you recall was that really hard to do at that time you know because nowadays these licenses would be you know you have to sell your soul to get some of these as uh, uh Actually, no. I think at that time it really was. It was 
the harder part wasn't an issue of like, oh, money or, you know, you know, getting the harder part was in many ways was convincing companies that it was even worth doing. Mm. Uh, that, you know, doing a you know, Marvel, you know, convincing Marvel that doing a role playing game was was worth was worth the time it would take them to like, you know, you know, review and approve and all that sort of stuff that it would be beneficial to them. And, and because at that point, you know, the whole idea that there was this big crossover between like role players and other kind of cultural forms still was, was, you know, not really a, a, a well-established thing. These days, you know, uh, you know, you know, and people like to believe that geeks now rule the world or, you know, that, you know, the fans you know, are all that, you know, and it has become much more of a dominant kind of like, hey, you know, when you put out something, you're not putting out just, oh, I'm going to put out a comic book anymore. You know, let's look at like, hey, what's the whole package you want to do here? Uh, so the hard part with Marvel was was we had to actively kind of go to them and say, look, you know, this is something that we, you know, will benefit you guys. This will be, you know, it'll be good for you. It'll be. And uh, Jeff Grubb was really a big, uh, big kind of champion for that on the design side. Uh, with Indiana Jones, it was a little, uh, Indiana Jones was kind of a nightmare because they were like, yeah, yeah, we've got a movie coming out. You guys can do a game thing while we do role-playing games. Okay, great. We'll do, you know, you know, essentially kind of, you know, sold them on the idea of that role-playing game. And then they discovered what role-playing games were. And that was not what they wanted in the sense, because it's like, what, you know, what do you mean they get to make their own characters? No, no, no. They have to play <laughs> one of the, they can only play approved yeah. <laughs> I want to be you know, the so third Nazi. That would be Jones, <laughs> and and somebody had to play. You know, uh, you know, you could have Marion, or you could have Short Round, and you, know, you you can play Short Round. But they but they they would not approve the idea of that there was a player character generation system, uh, and so we had to toe that line. Except that there is a very detailed NPC creation system in the back. <laughs> that hopefully, all we can hope is that people would pick up that clue. And <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. yeah, but we couldn't say here. You play. You know, it was a role playing game. First thing you do is create your character because that's that was completely out with them. Consequently, yeah, that game did not do well. Later on, you know, Lucas, you know, they had the Star Wars thing. They went to uh, West End and they had no trouble at that point. Yeah. Uh, talked to Bill Slavisek, you know, that, no, that by that point, Lucas figured that out. Oh, these are role-playing games. They're not, you know, it's other things. So they benefited from our experience, I guess. Does <laughs> that come just from the, you know, it's almost similar to what, like you said, with Gary and, and Greyhawk, it's this, parochial proprietary this is my world and we have this vision and we don't whereas now it's more oh if you can extend the property as long as it's in the milieu great that's more oh, don't don't think that it's still that easy yeah. <laughs> i mean uh they are proprietary in a way that that is uh you know super they're super careful everything has to get approved everything has to be reviewed everything uh you know, if you're dealing with like Marvel or if you're dealing with like LucasArts or stuff, you know, they have they have whole now, you know, people just assigned to dealing with these kinds of problems, right? Or these these issues, because, you know, they're not going to let anything that goes out that doesn't match what their overall kind of like vision and 
and uh, kind of like plans are for stuff. So, you know, this is why there's the endless like controversies about, you know, expanded universe and what's canon and what isn't canon and stuff in, in Star Wars. Um, and, you know, and the Marvel is equally, tends to be equally as careful, especially when it relates to the movie properties, because, you know, there is so much money involved there. It feels like um, college football in some way because people want the controversy sometimes drives some of this because the, the the casual fan doesn't the casual fan doesn't know oh wait a minute Spider Man's part of Avengers why is he you know until <laughs> till someone told them oh that's what has okay great you know it's it's the it's this <laughs> you know of the millions of people who went to see the those movies how many of them really knew from the comics some of this and and the Sony issue and all that you know it's. It's uh, yeah. controversy for controversy's sake. Uh, w- last question we have online is, you know, like you mentioned, the Geeks won. You know, you've got the Russo, bro, you know, and John. All they've credited so much of their work to, uh, you know, being in, influenced and playing the games that you wrote. Uh, do you think it's? Um, do you? How do you feel when you hear that? Uh, you know that these folks who, you know, leading our culture in in many ways. Uh, creative forces they they accredit you into the and and your 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 work that you've done well i'm i'm, I'm of course i'm pretty you know i'm pretty pleased to hear i'm pleased to hear that i'm not a lot of times you hear like oh i played D D, you know scriptwriter who who learned you know we'll say yeah look kind of learned how to do this uh, by playing D D, and it's not like he learned how to write he, you know he learned how to write for because he was you know, you know theoretically a good writer or something like that but you know what you learned all that as a kid is you learned how to how to tell a story to somebody in a way that would get their attention and 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 keep them keep them paying attention. That's really cool. I love that. And how do I feel about it? Like I said, it's great. I do wish they had paid me more back then. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and, we, and your wife deserves a shout out. I don't know if this was mentioned expressly, but she encouraged you, if I recall correctly, to apply for the job, right? Well, she certainly was like she. Yes, she's here. She, uh, she she's nodding. Yeah, yeah, she's agreeing to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so yeah. Um, and, uh, if she had disapproved, I would never have done it. Yeah, that's that's for, certainly the case. If there's if she's monitoring this call, if there's a safe word, you can just let us know what the because uh, she's obviously off camera. She's left, so it's yes. Sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. Are you in danger? Do you need help? It's just uh, <laughs> we need have to you call seen? somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's james's wife that's right yeah my my wife would be like what's going on uh one actually do you know what the inspiration of the drow was do you know who who inspired that uh well that that i'm pretty much uh my impression has always been that was a gary creation it's um probably i think possibly with some uh you know interaction from other people it was created before i was started at tsr because that was in the original um you know series of modules that they did back when they were discovering hey we can we can print these things and sell them uh so you know never actually i never sat down with gary and said hey did you create drow but he was you know it was definitely of the set of modules that he was you know directly responsible for in many ways the uh do you have strong feelings one way or the other about unearthed arcana? Um, uh, Wait a minute. You can't use that word. <laughs> oh, sorry. He wouldn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry. What's up? 
in, obviously, I, I removed some stuff from it that we did not use some stuff from it when we went to second edition, so I have some strong feelings about those. Uh, but overall, I mean, it was it was the uh, it was what what we needed to do at the time, which is we had to start you know expanding the whole idea that the that we could do more of these hardback book kind of things as opposed to just you know turning out modules and you know character record sheets and that sort of thing. Okay. The uh, All right. well, the last thing is uh, we have Bucky says. Uh, he he wants to thank you. He still he will play second edition till he dies. He said so. Uh, well, thank you. Well, live long. That's right. Live long. <laughs> so, uh, have you kept up with the editions? I mean, have you? Uh, do you follow that process after you left? I, I dropped out like 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 uh, many people. I dropped out of role playing for quite a while um, when I went off to video games. There was too much work to do, and you know, frankly, I'd been playing. You know, working in video in, in role-playing games for like 15 years, I looked at three and three five, and frankly, the rules were just way too complicated for me to feel like I really wanted to play them. Um, so I avoided those. Uh, and but then with 5e coming back out, uh, it's gone now, kind of full circle back around towards much more of an approach that I would would take. Of you know, like oh, this is this is more accessible. This is you know. And so I have, you know, I've played a bit of 5e, and I find that the rules are pretty good. I mean, it, it, does, it does what I think the new rules need to do, and it doesn't try to do all the things that I don't think the rules need to do. And so if, if, if they said, well, we need a 6e, you know, because you came in <laughs> after, you know, what, what would be the number one thing in I'm a 6e? I'm not getting into that fight yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's out. He's, he's not even going to start that conversation of what was 60. Uh, no, that's, that's for other people, younger people from me. <laughs> very good, very good. Go ahead, Dan. No, and I was going to say uh, before, we certainly want to give a shout-out to Steve Herring, who one of our listeners who was instrumental in, 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 in contacting Zeb oh, and getting you, him Steve. on the show. Awesome. I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledge our appreciation uh, for Steve doing that. So. so so I talked to Zeb last night and I was gonna say, hey, you can promote your you know what you're doing now. And he said, Well, I'd appreciate that, but I'm I'm on a uh, I, I, everyone's on a need to know basis. So if people have questions on social media or you know, how can people reach out to you if you're uh, on social media? Um, well, I have a Facebook page, which is uh, cunningly uh, under the name David Zeb Cook, uh, and, and which people can certainly post um, post messages to that, and I try to remember to look at them. And that's uh, that's probably the easiest way okay. uh, at this point. I'm I'm not super active on social media stuff because you know I'm an old guy, <laughs> and, and, and you have a life, which is because uh, it's, it's a time suck. Uh, do you still go to? You mentioned you uh, DM on at conventions, or are you a pretty frequent convention goer? I mean, obviously with the pandemic, that's uh, an issue. Now. Uh, well, I'm not a frequent one this year, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, normally, I go to there about. Two or three that I normally try to go to regularly, then um, uh, that would have been uh, Gary Con, and then North Texas RPG Con, and uh, sometimes Game Hall. And uh, those are the ones that I would normally go to because I a know the people involved, and b I think they're all very well-run conventions. Uh, and then I also uh, these days do a lot of miniatures gaming, and so I go off to you know play miniatures games. 
Oh, that's, it, that, just, that'd be perfect. You know, that sounds like he could go to GrogCon at Crucible where we have in October. I know this year may be off because we all may be dead by October. But um, if we do survive, you know, we, we do. Well, you know, someone's got to be half empty. Dan's the half full. He's positive we're all going to die. I'm, I'm saying we might die. Uh, but we do. They have a miniature play in that. So we'll we'll have to see if, if uh, we can get him down here one of these years. That'd be great. <laughs> Oh, and, and so, but did you stay in contact with Gary? And 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 do you remember the last time you spoke with Gary before his passing? Um, I did not stay in contact. I mean, there with second edition, there was always something of a little bit of a yeah, you know, of a I, I wouldn't say hostility. It wasn't hostility, but there was always a little bit of an awkwardness at that point. Um, he did at one point uh, try to hire me away. To uh, go work for um, what was it? Tri G, uh, the the uh, company he was setting up after after he left TSR, and I I ultimately didn't take that offer, but uh, but yeah, we were always you know more kind of like oh ran into each other at conventions, we'd say hello and that sort of thing, but yeah. Okay, okay, um, and um, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, favorite module. Not that you wrote, but that somebody else wrote. Do you have one? That if you had uh, to run somebody else's, you know what reminded me of is, you know, Gary said, I, what, I think he loves uh, what, King's Despot or whatever the good King Despot or something like that he's famous for saying was his favorite module that he didn't write. Is there one that you can think of? Um, uh, I think it was a, a Cthulhu module, uh, Horror on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah because, simply because, you know, Trapping them all on a train was way too much fun. <laughs> and also because I ran that for a, for a group of people who uh, over you know many sessions, and uh, who all we all played it, it was yeah and it all worked out very well. So I have a fondness for that one. Very good. Okay. Well, worked out well in Call of Cthulhu means only like most of them all right, died. Right. But they, <laughs> the other the other ones were insane. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only insane. Yay. Yes, it's a win. <laughs> well, well, so. well right. Zeb, it has been a real pleasure on, on behalf of our the listeners who are around the world. They really thank you for your contributions, and they wish you the best. And stay safe uh, where you're and, in and your Jason, mission. got to do a roll. Yes, Don't right. Get right? Are we got to do a roll? That is absolutely correct. So our, what, we have a tradition. We roll a D10 to, if you have a D10, to see how well the uh, episode is. One, it, right. it was a train wreck, and we're sorry we wasted your time. Ten, this will go in the annals of history of uh, interviewing. Uh, they're, they're searching. We, we forgot to warn them to have a. I'm looking for a D10. I don't have well, one. This is another, well, this is another final test. Right, and this Does is, our uh, guest uh, have uh, a. Digging. There, there are dice scattered in random places this is, all over the this house. This is also an homage to you because initiative is D10 <laughs> in second edition, which is you know obviously could, a change. I could do the old fallback, which is I find a book and I just flip through and like you know look at the last oh, number. I hadn't thought about that. That's true. <laughs> All right, that, yeah, you can, let's do it. Your, I like it. Anything random. That's old school, that is, my that friend. That is really old school. Do you have any chips? Do you have any? Uh, uh, oh, I got an eight. Eight, perfect. Eight. That is very good. <laughs> we like that. Eight, congratulations. That's What book was that? That was the ultimate Thai cookbook. <laughs> Ooh. I, I would like some Thai food. You know, That's, whatever page you open it, you must... You must make that meal now. <laughs> eight, excellent. Well, well or, yeah, that's... Uh, and some Thai food would be great. Now we can finally get out and go some places. So uh, that'll be nice All to right. do that. Uh, we're still we're still being careful in Maryland. 
Yeah, well, uh, well, here it's uh, every person for themselves. We just try not to hug each other anymore. You know, we'll, we're, uh, we, I, what did they, what's the joke? It's not that the thing has changed, it's just they have room in the ICU now for you. So that's what they're, they're basically saying. But uh, will you, right. you and the missus, please be safe. Um, we, we wish you the best up there. Thank you for your time today. It was really a, our pleasure to have you on today. Oh, this has been a, this has been a fun morning. I've had a good time. Thank you. Hi, that. hi. It's been a pleasure. You can see her elbow. <laughs> I saw, we, we got an elbow. That's right. Well, thank you. Uh, we, we really appreciate everyone, uh, your time here and the contributions. And if you ever want, if you're ever allowed to speak about the products that you're working on, you want to come back on, just shoot us a note. We'd be happy to have you on and um, we'll, we'll be happy to promote okay, that. I will do that. <laughs> that, right. that would be great. Right. So, so on, behalf of, on behalf of Grog Talk, I'm James. And I'm Dan. And we will see you next time on Grog Talk. Take care. This is Big Abushi Puppy Production. All rights reserved.